Ladies and gentlemen, every other Tuesday on the Journey into Comics Network, it's poor news with the late-breaking news when it matters most. The following, the following, the following. The following. Journey into Comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. And here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Journey Into Comics, the podcast dedicated to all things nerd, with your host, the podfather himself, Nate Phillips. Showtime, a-holes. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of Journey Into Comics. It's Journey Into Comics 223. You know who I am. It's me, your host, Nate. Hope you guys are doing well on this fantastic Monday Christmas Eve is here, I believe, folks. Give it up for Mr. Claus, maybe coming down the chimneys to your to your little ones tonight and bringing them lots of joy. And I hope that you yourself are having a joyous uh, season. And, you know, even if you seem like you're, you know, maybe don't have a lot of people to go to or family to visit or what have you, you always have the Journey into Comics Network and me right here because I'm talking to you right now. So let's get into it, guys. Since I've last spoke to you, I hosted a con. That was crazy. I played two shows. Those have been crazy. I finished a TV series. That's been crazy. I caught up on a comic book series. That was crazy. All these things are stuff that's going to be talked about and covered today. Getting into it, as always, I like to do a little bit of a recap and break down kind of the the Nate behind the scenes, because I have this duality of who I am, because I am Journey into Comics Network Nate, the pod father, the pod daddy, the guy from the flagship show or whatever, and I, I do have to wear that hat, and it's a hat I fucking love wearing, I'm wearing it right now, clearly, but I also am drummer slash manager slash graphic designer slash roadie for Walk Among Us, the only punk rock piano tribute to the Misfits, and we've had kind of a string of, I don't know, success is relative, but we've had good fortune in building our brand and evolving ourselves and getting ourselves in front of more people. And I think ultimately that's what it's about when you are a musician. Win, lose, or draw, uh, two things make sense. Making money as a musician. We can do that. We consistently are making you know money at shows, which is nice. And then also you have to look at it from the other aspect, which is not just the money side of it, right? You have to look at it for the how many new eyes or different eyes or um, unsuspecting eyes maybe is the way to say that check down what we were doing in the live setting. Because ultimately the only thing I think that sells our band better than anything else that we do, whether it's social media based networking and all that shit, our strength is in coming and seeing our live show. Like, you haven't seen shit until you've seen us play live. And I'm not trying to brag, but there's just a, I mean, there's a certain consistency in things that people say to me that allow me to affirm to other people that unless all these other people are conspiring together across all these different places we've played, that there is a genuine thing that happens when we perform and there's an energy that we capture in essence and there's a captivating i guess you know or or un, you know unassuming we're a very unassuming band we look like we're not going to do a whole hell of a lot we got two pianos and a drummer what can they do and then when we get into the shit and fucking nearly go everyone's like oh whoa okay okay i get this awesome wicked so anyways <clears throat> so where you know wearing the many different hats i have to kind of like play the game and be different parts of my own self 
<clears throat> it's weird because I'm always me. That's a something I do want to clarify. I don't like I don't want people who are listening to think, oh, he's fake to his podcasting friends and then fake to the people he meets in the bay. No, I'm genuine with everybody. That's not what I'm saying. But mentally, internally, I am in a different focus. That's the way to say when I'm saying I'm wearing a different hat. I'm saying that when, you know, it was really difficult. I'm, and this is kind of where we're going. We're going to go back to the first show we played, uh, of our two shows we played in the past couple days. And uh, that was last weekend. We played at the Looney Bin in Bradley. Now, here's the crazy thing. We haven't played the Looney Bin in Bradley for almost exactly two years. And the last time we played there, uh, in the craziest turn of events, uh, we played at like two in the morning and no one, no one was there. It was awful. It was just really like, um, it wasn't necessarily the Looney Bin's fault or it, it was like not in the cards for this one show for us to go. Right. And I can really elaborate on that. I'm not really, I, I, I could, I'm maybe I will. Let's see. We'll, 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 we'll dive further. So we did that show and it was a benefit show, and there were like seven other acts on the card, and we were supposed to headline, but there was nobody really running the show because the person that was supposed to be running the show had been sick, so they didn't come. So they didn't have a backup plan of like, well, if he can't do it, who runs the show and ensures that everything is on time and working smoothly? No one. No one was there to ensure things were running smoothly. So when the guy who was running the benefit didn't show up, and he was also one of the acts on the card, they told two old dudes to go up on stage who played for an hour and a half. Then they took another 20 minutes to get off stage. Then the next band took another 15 minutes to set up. Then that band played 40 minutes and took another 25 minutes to get off stage. And you can kind of see where we're already off the rails. So by the time it was time for us to play, it was so late that there was very few people there. And it was the only time we performed the entire Misfits Famous Monsters album in its entirety. And very controversial that we did this, I, I guess you could say, because um, from one perspective, musically speaking, that era of the quote-unquote Misfits is not 77 to 83 dancing Misfits, the Misfits, what you think about, what you should think about when you think about the Misfits. They're two different things. Musically, they feel different. They play different. They are different. There's no similarity, right? Maybe Jerry only's in both, but that doesn't mean they have the same vibes. They don't. Uh, and it's very hard to inter inter interchange. And at that point, when we were so green in this band and, and learning what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do things, uh, we would play sets that were half and half, some Danzig, some Graves, and it was hard. It felt like transitioning into sludge that we were just like, okay, we're playing these songs now. Cool. Let's get back to the dance. Like, okay, and then we're back. So the Looney Ben Bradley show solidified something. It just left the worst taste in my mouth, and it left me so... I mean, that's our fifth show, and that was really our first major letdown. Like, it was a build-up all night. We were super excited to play. There were so many people there throughout the night. And slowly there were less people and less people and less people and less people and less people. And there's almost no one. You know, so going through that was really rough. And it, like, shook me. Fast forward to this weekend. 
and where it's a new opportunity, we're a different band. Totally. We haven't played any of that famous monster stuff for that two years. We've not touched it. We don't play it anymore. It's not. I mean, I'm sure I could play it, but to me, it doesn't really exist, right? So I'm just like, we're going to go back here and kick ass. I'm excited. And we did. We had the biggest crowd, which was incredible to experience. We had uh, just an amazing energy. I loved that show. It was really fun. Uh, we made some moolah. We got to have some pretty good food. Uh, the show went off without a hitch, I thought. Uh, we got home at a pretty decent hour, so we got to get to bed at a pretty decent hour, which is always nice for us. Like it's Sometimes it's like, man, those... Like three of us driving in a truck, we get home, and then it's just like we have to almost be alive and stretch ourselves out of being in the truck or get ourselves in a different um, headspace or whatever because you can't just gear down after a show. It's so difficult. So we play this really stellar show. We come home. We were up a little bit late, whatever, get to bed. The next morning, Sarah had to go do lessons. Boom, she's out the door. Veronica and I had to get up and go and do fucking LafayetteCon. So we had to get up also super early and drive to Lafayette, which is an hour and a half and an hour time difference. So essentially a two and a half hour drive if you're, uh, you know, doing it that way uh, to get there by like 1030 ish set up, get ourselves ready on stage and prepped for LafayetteCon before Christmas, where we had a lot of different crazy things planned. And, you know, that day is really cool because... It's actually cata- like cataloged, I guess you'd say, by everything we did has all come out on the network so far. So you had last week's episode was V, myself, Dick, and uh, our awesome friend Brian K. Morris. Shout out to you. Uh, we're all on the stage talking and talking about Brian's rising tide philosophy and being on for the camera and, and, and like a wide array of stuff, and that was great. Then, of course, on Wednesday, you had other another part of LafayetteCon, which was John Tyler, Christopher, Cameron, Cotterman, and myself talking about both comic books and wrestling. Great, humongous conversation. Uh, and uh, you had a thing that you guys are going to actually hear today at the um, probably the end of this episode, or maybe I'll put it in the middle, and we'll figure that out. It'll probably be in the end. But anyways... I did an interview as as well as with Veronica. Veronica and I did this interview with uh, Julie Wolf Scott. She's an author of the Children of Oberon series. Uh, she graciously gifted me this book, The Sodality, which is the prequel book to her series. She said it sets everything in motion for her universe, and it's a great read. So I'm gonna you know check it out and then actually talk about it here on the show. It's a pretty thick book here. It's a 300 pages plus. So. 321 pages exactly, so that's pretty cool. I love the feel of the matte finish on the on the actual uh, book itself. Big sucker for textile things like that. So, uh, so that was awesome. And then also, you guys won't hear this for a little over a week, two weeks, two weeks, two and a half weeks here somewhere around there. Uh, the first Sunday of January, folks, January sixth, I do believe is the date. The Journey into Comics Network will officially debut and bring to you episode one of Dungeons with Dudes. Now, I was a guest on this show. Veronica was a guest. Dick was a guest. Nick from Brews with Dudes was a guest. Actually, he's the host. 
Uh, he's hosting now with a new co-host of the Journey into Comics Network. Let's welcome Dave Linder. <laughs> Love having Linder on the team. We've actually had some pretty great, uh, some pretty great acquisitions come out of LaFiCon for the networks. You know, strangely, I'm not going to spoil anything yet. But I mean, Linder's one that I can spoil. It is pretty awesome to have him on the network. He is going to officially be co-hosting Dungeons with Dudes. They're going to be running games, doing a whole bunch of different crazy stuff. We did this game called Dread. We just got into it. Uh, I think the actual thing was called De- uh, Decampitized, I think, maybe was what it was called. I'm pretty sure. But uh, overall, Dungeons with Dudes, you guys are going to be checking it out on January 6th in the new year. It's a new show for the network. It is a all-games-based show, so it's it's constantly playing games and role-playing as other characters in different worlds, whether it's a little bit of Dungeons with Dragons here and there. They might run a campaign or something. They might run a game like, you know, they might run like Eldritch Horror, or they might run Arkham Horror, or they might run something like Cards Against Humanity, where we may officially be bringing back holiday bullshit. What? The reboot? That would be absolutely outstanding. I would be super jazzed if that officially happens. We'll see. We'll see. So... LaFiCon was a great success. It turned out really nicely. Thanks to Seema, Nick, Brian, uh, Alex, you guys, you know, they do so much work, and I feel like they're still totally being under underappreciated in the area. And I just want to keep encouraging anyone in the Lafayette area to go out to these events. And, you know, if it's a Doom Room-sponsored event, you're going to have a good time. Almost guaranteed. You know what? Another thing I want to mention is if it's a Doom Room event, you're going to have a safe time because they don't play. And if someone feels unsafe in that environment, they just need to go tell someone, hey, man, this fucking shit's getting weird. Or if there's a lady that's feeling odd, hey, man, Nick Maxon's just shit's fucking weird, man. Save me. And he'll take care of it. These guys are great dudes. So, you know, if you're in the Lafayette area, don't take these these events and these people who are working their, their butts off. Literally, Nick... The Doom Room and everything that the Doom Room and the Brews with Dudes and, and now Dungeons with Dudes do and North End Pub and all those things, like, they all, across the board, all, uh, they're just so driven, you know, and that's, it's a great thing to see, man. It's really inspiring to me. So then we kind of moved into our week. I had a little bit of not really recovery time because it was kind of like, get into it's Christmas time, so we've got to start gearing up to do that. And by the time Thursday hits, hey, we got another show. And where are we going? To another story that goes back in time to forward in time, because this, back in January, uh, January 10th, Walk Among Us played The Beat Kitchen, The Beat Kitchen in Chicago, and it was awesome. It was a great show. We had an awesome turnout for January 10th. It was crazy fucking cold, you know? And it was still a great turnout. So, had a great time there. They asked us back, do you want to try to come back? And I was like, fuck yeah, we love the Beat Kitchen. Why would we have any opposition to that? So, we come back. And, you know, it's a Thursday night right before Christmas. We called it the American Nightmare Before Christmas. The Misfits classically wrote a song called American Nightmare. It's tongue-in-cheek. I thought it was fucking good. The girls wanted to do that show last year, and we just didn't didn't pull it off. So now was the time to execute this game plan. So we go to the Beat Kitchen. Now, let me tell you something. It was really cool to have someone all the way from Los Angeles, California, in the crowd to watch us specifically play. 
because Veronica's sister, Natalie, was home from L.A., and her husband, John, who's an amazing dude, and uh, they came to the show and watched and were rocking out, and it was a great time. Had had several people out, had uh, some people from the internet world that we had never met before come out just to see us and then like be like, hey, I'm so-and-so from 7th House or from wherever, and you guys are fantastic, and uh, you know, and just like talk our ears off and whatnot. It's that's always a humbling thing for me because when it's weird because I go up on stage in my head again to talk about the different headsets. I'm on stage, my brain goes, okay, it's on. Let's uh, you know, let's uh, let's make some fun music, and then my brain, as soon as the music thing hits and my drums are set up, people always ask if I'm nervous. I don't really get nervous for anything other than for myself because I am not a perfect drummer by any means, and I sometimes have slip-ups. It happens. It's true. So when I'm playing, in my head, I'm like, don't fuck up, don't fuck up, and I'll forget silly things. Like, I'll get into a song, and I'll just be like, oh, I'm playing the wrong beat. I don't know why I'm playing the wrong beat. Oh, I'll fix it now, and then I'll just switch it up, and it just changes. Nobody's really going to remember that I changed it up, you know, but... uh Little shit like that, man, does happen. So we play the Beat Kitchen, and we play, you know, and it was a great time. We leave there, and then now we're slamming into Christmas mode, guys. And here we are. It's we're here officially. I'm officially recovered, and uh, so far, the Christmas, uh, the big ticket Christmas thing I've gotten so far is the three of us are going to see the Misfits in April. So now my March and my April have become uh, concert heavy, I guess, because we are playing, or we're going to see uh, Dad, myself, my sister, and my sister's husband, Bill, are going to go see Metallica in Indianapolis, stoked, and then uh, Sarah Veronica and I are going to get to go see the Misfits in April in Chicago. A day after, we play a show, because we're doing a huge show in Chicago the night before the Misfits play. We've got some stuff planned. We're trying to put something together. We're going to have to make an official announcement here pretty shortly. You might hear something on the internet tomorrow. You know, it is Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Anyways, folks, so I said also that I've been caught up on comics. I've caught up on a TV show. I don't know where I really want to go from here. I do actually, I do know where I want to go from here. I want to look up at my calendar and know that tomorrow is poor news. Make sure to check out poor news brought to you by this drink break. I know I did that backwards and it was on purpose. Man, water's so good, man. Anyways, so let's just do it. Let's get into the one that's going to take me the longest because I need to know how long it's going to take me. So guys, here's the deal. I used to cover on this show the walking dead comics every time a comic came out every month i was on it the week it dropped it was a part of the episode we were talking about it right the wednesday the monday following the wednesday of its release we were always going to be dishing on the walking dead and what's going on i always did that with brando though that was a very special thing for he and i because it was one of the things that i knew we were genuinely bonded by when he came onto the show on interview with the Game Pyre way, 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 way back in the beginning. I think that was episode five. So 
when he left the network and went and did his own thing, like, I did not feel like talking about The Walking Dead. I I mean, I read it, but I was just, like, kind of silent. And I'd fallen really behind. And then I caught up on this most recent ep- issue of The Walking Dead 186, and it was a shocker. And then I found out some other Christmas that I'm getting that's not going to be here in time for Christmas. That's okay, because that's, that's the Christmas world. It, it happens. Grateful to be getting anything, you know. So um, this shocker happens in 186, and I was like, fuck, I really need to, like, get everything together and cover these issues on the show. How do I do that? Well, the issue is I don't have the brightest memory in the world, and... I could kind of briefly give you like, oh, Cliff Notes, this kind of happened, this kind of happened. Or I could go to this really awesome site that has really well-written out plots for each issue. I want to read these out. It takes four or five minutes, so it's going to be a little bit kind of longer, but we're going to kind of blow through what's been going on in the build-up to issue 186. And then we're going to do the 186 plot, and then when it's done, I'm going to talk about it as a whole. And then we'll move into the rest of the show, all right? Just giving you guys a breakdown so you know what you're doing with your time. Now's the point if you're not really into The Walking Dead. I'd say give us a good 25 minutes. It's going to it's gonna take a minute, all right? So here we go. Let's get right into it. The last issue we covered on the show was 178. We're at 186 now, so it's been a while. Now, the, mo- the most recent issue we have to cover is 179. That was part five of six of New World Order. It came out May 2nd of 2018, all right? Here we go. Michonne asks her daughter to elaborate on her early sentiments that they must know their place. When Elodie is reluctant, Sebastian asserts that the community owes him and his family for everything. He warns the group against any further issues, advising that they consider what is at risk. Mercer steps in at this point, noting that Sebastian's mother allows him to get away with a lot, but she wouldn't want him slapping their citizens for no reason. Sebastian then slaps Mercer, saying there was a reason to prove a point. Sebastian hastily makes his exit after this, as he notices how angry he has made the officer. Mercer attempts to assuage the group's frustration by explaining that even though the community has a few bad people, the sheer size of it means you don't see these people as often. He further explains that they all know that worse could be happening than being slapped, but Michonne interjects that this doesn't make it right. Mercer agrees and cites this example to Siddick as one of the reasons that the soldiers may need to, quote, blow off steam. Siddick uneasily agrees. As the group conveys at Elodie's apartment, Michonne questions Siddick on whether Mercer meant uh, what Mercer meant with his comments to him. Siddick relays to the group the conversation that he overheard between Mercer and George in the locker room. Elodie and Stephanie aren't convinced by the story, believing Mercer to be someone who ultimately likes things the way they are. Stephanie adds the incident or adds that Incidents with the upper class are few and far between, which prompts Michonne to question how the community has a class system to begin with. Elodie and Stephanie further explain that the Commonwealth bases a person's social status almost purely on what they did before the outbreak. A person's class determines their work assignments, and their work assignments determine their level of income. Stephanie and Elodie believe that the system isn't unfair, as you are allowed once per year a chance to apply to move up. Eugene admits the system can have its merits. However, the community has never been, their community has never been at a size where such system is feasible. Princess likens this system to a video game and approves of it. 
This, however, prompts Magna's indignation, who is incredulous that the community is willing to go back to a world of haves and have-nots. Magna decides that she has already had enough of the community, but Michonne implores her not to judge them just yet. She explains that their communities continue to grow larger and rebuild. A class system may eventually become unavoidable, using the hilltop as an example. She states that not everyone is able to live in the Barrington house and that those who cannot live in the trailers. She concludes by pointing out that if people have the opportunity to move up, then it isn't all bad. Magna cuttingly reminds Michonne that she used to be a lawyer and stands to gain quite a bit from the paradigm shift. Michonne states that her own past has nothing to do with it, but Magna reminds her the point they're arguing is that it actually has everything to do with it. Magna resolves that she wants nothing to do with the Commonwealth. Sometime later, Michonne and Elodie take a walk through town. Elodie tells Michonne that when she returns, they should go see other settlements. She mentions her favorite one in particular, a place called Greenville that sits on a huge lake and people have boathouses. Siddick, Eugene, Princess, and Stephanie eat at a local cafe. Stephanie explains that the guards they see in town are all trainees and they are all more ex- there are more experienced soldiers running missions outside to keep the area clear. The group meets up that night again to eat at upscale restaurant with a view of the city. Elodie notes that she normally doesn't get to eat at such places and that the Commonwealth might be trying to impress them. Stephanie and Eugene go on a walk together, where she offers to show Eugene her apartment. Eugene agrees, though Stephanie is slightly embarrassed by the suggestive dialogue. Stephanie later shows Siddick around an area that is under development, noting that there are quite a few construction jobs. This piques Siddick's interest, who states that this is where he'd like to be if he came back. Michonne cooks a meal for herself and Elodie, with the former asking for a form of repayment for her work. Elodie says she has something in mind, and the group is later seen cheering at a football game. Michonne meets with Lance Hornsby, who asked Michonne that, who asked that Michonne consider staying with Pamela, or staying when Pamela sets off to meet with Rick in Alexandria. They are aware of how happy Michonne is to see to be reunited with her daughter again, and Lance affirms that the Commonwealth could always use more lawyers. Michonne rebuffs that she could definitely that she has already definitely considered staying at Lance assures her that she truly hasn't seen all they have to offer. As Pamela prepares to depart, Sebastian is close behind her. She tells her son to listen to Lance while she's gone and not to cause any trouble. Sebastian expresses his disapproval over being treated like a child to be looked after, and Pamela doubles down on a more serious warning to which Sebastian finally complies. Pamela tells Sebastian that she knows things have been hard since his father passed, but assures him that he is destined for greatness as long as he applies himself. Pamela has her son give her a kiss goodbye, telling him that at least he's doing that right. As Merster assists her onto her wagon, Eugene asks Michonne if her daughter is coming to see her off. Michonne states that Elodie is not seeing her off, as she is not leaving. Michonne believes that she has been away from her daughter for too long and doesn't want to leave her again. Eugene believes that she is the best one to talk to Rick about what they've seen in the Commonwealth since she has seen the most since she since the Commonwealth barely conversed with anyone else uh, and that if anything Elodie would have come back with them. Melody hands over or Melody shit. Michonne hands over her katana to Eugene, telling him to give it to Rick. As Eugene reels from the weight of the request, Michonne explains that the katana was never who she was and is no longer who she is now. She is certain that her comfort in living in the Commonwealth without Rick will tell Rick everything he needs to know about the community. Michonne lays complete faith in Pamela handling the diplomatic talks, and Eugene tells her that her presence will always be needed. She disagrees, smiling as she sees them off. 
As the group rides off, Siddick questions Eugene on why Stephanie isn't coming, to which the latter reveals she couldn't step away from her duties. Siddick laments this as the two seem to bond with one another, but Eugene states they are just friends. He elaborates on how like-minded they are, especially in the thinking that people need to have more babies in order to ensure the sustainability of society. Siddick smiles at their obvious attraction to one another, telling Eugene to get to it. Princess tells Magna and Yumiko that she is excited to see Alexandria and meet Rick. She is delighted to have options on where to stay again and is also looking forward to seeing the new hilltop. She later tells Eugene that she just might miss Pittsburgh. Over the course of the trip, Pamela sleeps in a huge tent meant exclusively for her. Yumiko expresses disapproval over this as there is room for them all to fit in it, but Magna silences her. On a different night, Pamela has dinner in a tent with Mercer, asking what information he was able to glean from the visitors. He tells her that Eugene will be useful to them as he is very intelligent. The next day, Eugene notes that they might be able to make it before sundown, which prompts Pamela to speed up the caravan. As the group gets to a point where Alexandria is in view, Pamela sees the community and is repulsed, calling it a, quote, shithole. Eugene and Magna break away from the caravan, determined to get to Rick and give him the credit, or to give him the detail they've managed to gather on the Commonwealth before they catch up. Eugene hopes that the Commonwealth is actually as nice as they seem to be for their sake. So that's issue 179 in a nutshell. Obviously, themes things have kind of a dark theme here. We've got the initial meeting of the Commonwealth and Rick Grimes, what's going to happen. We jump ahead to June 6th of 2018 with the finale of the New World Order, issue 6 of 6. Uh, came out June 6th, and uh, we're getting ready to get right down to it after a short poor news every other Tuesday on the Journey into Comics Network. Drink break. Oh, spoiler alert, that's probably going to change too. The poor series is getting an, a probable overhaul, I would say. I mean, that's still for Mr. Poor to decide, but it, it seems like a good idea. Anyways, let's get down to the next one. Michonne and Elodie arrive to meet with Lance in a fancy apartment. Michonne is impressed with his home and compliments it, but Lance corrects her, asserting it's her home. Lance explains to a shocked Michonne that the Commonwealth is willing to provide her with the apartment if she agrees to practice law in it. Michonne is skeptical, stating that, quote, when something is too good to be true, it usually is. Lance, however, reassures her that his proposal is genuine. Michonne asks when she would move in, to which Lance replies that she just did. He also suggests that Elodie quits the bakery and starts working for Michonne as her new assistant. He goes on to elaborate that the rule of law is important to the Commonwealth and that they do have a few lawyers. There are none in Michonne's area of expertise. Lance leaves them to discuss the decision, and Elodie urges Michonne to accept. A remorseful Dwight arrives to see Laura and asks if it's too late for them. Bitterly, Laura replies that it's probably not. Dwight acknowledges that the thing that made Sherry betray him might have been the same thing that made her confront Rick in the way which led to her death. Laura summarizes this by stating, quote, that crazy bitch, but it takes but takes it back after Dwight angrily glares at her, though still asserting that she was fucking crazy. Dwight goes on to acknowledge that in the past she had a tendency to focus on the negative, which drove people away. Because of this, he thought that what happened between him and Sherry was his fault, uh, though now he can see that it, that wasn't the case. Laura asks him if he's going to apologize to Rick as well, and Dwight confirms that was his next stop. 
though he thought it'd be better if Laura accompanied him. Laura agrees, before they're both interrupted by the arrival of Eugene's group. After coming to the gate to meet them, they are surprised to learn the group is not alone. Dwight tells Laura to help him gather the army just in case. Laura asks if he's sure, but Dwight is adamant, stating that Rick will thank him if they need it, while also pointing out it's impossible for Rick to be even angrier with him if they don't. Eugene tells Pam Milton to wait in the carriage so he can announce her arrival. Pamela compliments the formality and encourages him to tell Rick that the platoon that accompanies them is a few hours behind, though could arrive sooner. She compliments Eugene's attempt to Yeah, she also compliments Eugene's attempt to rush ahead in the hopes that they would notice, for which a bemused Eugene thanks her. Pamela waves Eugene goodbye. Rick is alarmed to see Eugene carrying Michonne's sword, also or quickly asking what happened. Eugene explains how Michonne gave him the sword after she decided to stay at the Commonwealth so she could show Rick how much she trusted them. Eugene goes on to reveal that Michonne was reunited with her daughter, who is living in the Commonwealth, shocking Rick even more. Rick wonders how this is possible, and Eugene acknowledges its mathematical improbability, but an equally wonderful coincidence. Relieved, Rick states, that's wonderful. Eugene says their leader is waiting outside to meet Rick, and Rick in turn asks Eugene to tell him everything he learned about the Commonwealth. Rick arrives outside to meet Governor Milton. Pamela is somewhat appalled by his appearance. They make their introductions, and Rick is somewhat wary of her styling herself as governor before being interrupted by Princess, who is overjoyed to finally meet Rick, much to his confusion. He tells Pamela that some of her soldiers were rather colorful, but Pamela says that she was told Princess belonged to Rick's group. Princess clarifies that she met the group along the way while they were passing through Pittsburgh. Rick welcomes the new addition before politely asking Princess to leave him and Pamela to talk, which she does. Resuming their conversation, Rick tells Pamela that he's looking forward to getting to know her, as he has been told a lot of impressive things about her community. Pamela corrects him, stating that the Commonwealth isn't hers, as she didn't found the community, but was merely appointed to administer it after she arrived. Rick acknowledged he did the same and offered to trade war stories. Pamela responded that she doesn't actually have any, and Rick frowning states that he wishes he could say the same it go he goes on to ask pamela about the platoon of soldiers that accompanied her which she states are for her protection rick rick asks if she could send one of her men out to meet them and states that he'd prefer if she kept them at a small lookout station a mile away for the duration of their talks. Pamela is worried about the safety of the man she sent out, but Rick assures her that the area around Alexandria is safe. Looking behind him, an unassumed Pamela says that she may need all of her soldiers after all. Confused, Rick turns around only to find Dwight standing behind him with the militia. Dwight warns Pamela she was mistaken if she thinks they're helpless or vulnerable. Pamela asserts that she is not impressed by the militia, while Rick furiously tells Dwight to stand down. Rick apologizes to Pamela for Dwight's behavior, explaining that he is the leader of their military and is just making sure they're safe. Rick proposes that Dwight's troops accompany one of Pamela's men to the lookout station so they could meet the pl- her platoon. Pamela agrees to send Mercer. With this issue solved, Rick offers Pamela a grand tour to which she gladly accepts. Maxwell attempts to accompany him, but Pamela says she'll be fine and walks away with Rick while Maxwell glares at them unamused. Let me adjust here. I'm slipping away from my table. Oh, goodness. Okay, let's get back to it. 
This this is a little bit of a longer synopsis. Sorry, folks, this one's taken a bit. Pamela cautiously asks Rick how he lost his hand, to which he recounts his story with the governor. Pamela expresses her condolences, acknowledging that makes her title rather awkward and encourages Rick to call her by her first name only. Rick says it's no trouble and that he didn't tell her the story to make her uncomfortable, but to point out the kind of people his group has had to deal with this far. This was particularly so she'd understand Dwight's actions, and particularly so she'd know what she's up against. Somewhat impressed, Pamela states that things just got intense, but Rick reassures her that they don't have to be, and that they'll get to know each other. After taking a tour of the mill, Pamela compliments the taste of the bread. Rick elaborates that Eugene designed the mill and also fixed the radio that allowed them to contact the Commonwealth. Pamela compliments Eugene's resourcefulness and states that she's excited to learn what he could do with the resources of the Commonwealth at his disposal. Rick is surprised and somewhat unimpressed that such a large community needs Eugene, as he'd expect they'd have at least five like him. Pamela reassures him that while they have their free thinkers, people like Eugene are always in high demand, which Rick agrees with. After sampling Alexandria's apples, Pamela asks Rick about his house. When Rick points out Pamela is shocked that he lives with everyone else and has the same houses as everyone else, Rick tells her, while he is the leader, his benefits and chores are the same as the rest of the communities, proclaiming they're all equals in Alexandria. Pamela questions his philosophy, stressing that people need to look up to Rick and aspire to his level of the whole, uh, or, or the whole thing falls apart. Rick retorts that people look up to him because of what he's done and what he continues to do, not because of what he did or has. Pamela asks him about the status about his status before the apocalypse, wondering why he doesn't want it restored. Rick points that he only used to be a small-town cop and that his house was actually smaller than the one he currently has. He goes on to state that whatever status he had before he died with that life, that they had to earn their place in this new world. While Pamela assumes he doesn't want to offend offend, he questions the system under which the Commonwealth operates. Pamela describes the system as fair. Though Rick disagrees, Pamela adamantly tells him that the people need something to aspire and to work towards, and that mobility is important. But it may, while it may not be possible for everyone, it still keeps things running. She goes on to state that the working class is the foundation of the Commonwealth, and that you can't build anything without a strong foundation. Rick questions what en- why anything should be built upon the foundation upon the foundation at all, as his opinion, as in his opinion, it ruins it by burdening it with supporting others. Pamela replies, oh, "I lost my spot." Pamela replies that the world order, that this, is the world order and has always been, to which Rick retorts that perhaps it's time for a new world order, much to Pamela's dismay. See, this is where things are kind of, you know, steadily picking up here for The Walking Dead. Uh, the New World Order uh, storyline kind of, it's groundwork. And, and it's, it's interesting being a longtime fan of the comics. I'm just going to quickly talk about these two real quick before we move into the next two. The end of the New World Order storyline is really the groundwork for what's to come. And you really need these slower issues and i think that some of these issues are slower i mean you got to think guys uh we're um where what's the number here train of our existence oh he really is laying on that horn he really wants you to know he's there uh so anyways uh 
the groundwork here makes me appreciate because like with the walking dead back in the day you'd have what you think is slow and there's not a lot of stuff we haven't seen negan since like issue 169 or 165 or something like that so it's been a long ass time for negan he's you know uh on his way to 20 issues without being seen and michonne had a, a long uh time away so uh at some point we have to catch up with negan at some point we got to figure out what's going on with him he's not forgotten about trust me He's always in the forefront of my mind. But this is all setting up everything that comes from these decisions. And Dwight's decisions here are going to set up the future. And I want you guys to remember back at 180, kind of Dwight's, his his thought in the moment and his uh, gut reaction. We're going to move on to 181 now. So issue 181, first of all, I want to mention I fucking love the cover together strong i keep forgetting that they all have individual titles and i haven't been reading them like a dumbass so i'll start that now together strong walking dead 181 um princess and mercer back to back looks like they're fighting together came out on the 4th of july 2018 uh and we are going to get right into the plot here rick pamela and their entourage reached the outskirts of oceanside pamela is awestruck by the side of the ocean which she hasn't which she says she hasn't seen since before the apocalypse Maxwell corrects her, pointing out that it's more of an inlet, uh, though is quick to praise the sight nonetheless when Pamela glares at him, much to Mercer's amusement. Rick takes Pamela with him to introduce her to Pete. At the Commonwealth, Michonne informs Elodie that she has accepted Lance's offer, which Elodie is ecstatic to hear. Michonne also tells her that Lance has given her some time to get accustomed to the community and get up to speed with her old profession. Elodie asks if she'll have enough time for a trip, to which Michonne replies that she just might. At the hilltop, welcome back hilltop, Carl introduces himself to Joshua. He asks if Joshua's parents are inside with Maggie, and Joshua confirms, saying that she is making sure they're not too crazy to live at the hilltop. Joshua reassures Carl that they're never that they never liked the whispers, and they were just simply scared. Carl is happy to hear that Joshua and his parents aren't crazy and offered to show Joshua around. Joshua states that he likes it at the hilltop and wants to stay. He asks if it's safe at the community, to which Carl replies that it is most of the time. Meanwhile, Maggie, Aaron, and Jesus are talking about Joshua's family. Maggie states that they seem okay, which Aaron agrees with, adding that it hadn't seemed like they were with the Whispers for very long. Jesus agrees that they're good people. Maggie decides to let them stay, though, that they'll keep an eye on them. Uh, she adds that she's having Dante find a comfortable place for them to sleep. Maggie notes that comfort is in short supply, and as she's in Jesus and Aaron, if they could search for some furniture stores. Jesus informs her that Rick instructed her to make a list of everything she needs so that he can send Heath and his team to scavenge for it, for which Maggie is thankful. Aaron adds that Rick is also... Aaron adds that Rick also asked her to send Carl back for a visit, which Maggie agrees to. Jesus compliments the speed at which Barrington House was repaired. Maggie attributes this to the main structure surviving the fire as they just reinforced it and built on top of it. She notes that if it wasn't for that, it probably wouldn't able to be rebuilt. They would not have been able to rebuild the Barrington House. Jesus asks if he can have his old room back, which Maggie affirms. Switching the topic, Maggie asks if they're sure Beta and the Whisperers are dead, to which Jesus and Aaron reassure her that they are, with Jesus poking fun at the fact that they kind of went off with a whimper. Maggie is relieved to hear this. On the road, Princess thanks Rick for allowing her to join them, and Rick awkwardly tells her not to mention it. Princess asks if Rick trusts her, to which he answers yes, as long as Princess isn't acting the way she is at the moment. As Princess continues to babble, Rick stares at her in confusion. Suddenly, Dwight signals from the front for everybody to get down. A herd is blocking their way. 
Dwight asks Rick if they should let it pass, but Rick rejects this as even a slight deviation from the herd's current course could result in Oceanside being overrun. Rick wonders where their outlooks are and how they missed the herd. Dwight points out out that Rick, Heath, and himself can't steer it alone, but Rick interjects that they're not alone and notes that the herd isn't that large. Rick informs Mercer about the change of plans and asks for their assistance in steering the herd away from Oceanside. Mercer coldly states that he won't do anything that might endanger the governor, but Rick points out that they'll be leading the herd away from Pamela, and not doing so would actually be endangering her. Mercer and his soldiers reluctantly agree. Dwight instructs them on what to do. Princess is nervous, but Mercer reassures her by telling her to stick to him. As the group leads the herd away, Pamela orders her driver to get closer to them instead of staying put like she was told. Princess notices the back of the herd breaking off and informs Mercer, who is greatly frustrated to learn they've been alerted by the governor, who didn't stay told as she, or stay put as she was told. While distracted, Princess runs into a group of walkers and falls off her horse. Mercer jumps down to rescue her before realizing they're being swarmed. In the front of the herd, Dwight and the Commonwealth notice Mercer and Princess are in trouble. The soldiers say that he can get to them, but Dwight tells them it's too late and there are too many walkers in the way. The soldiers reply, that's what the armor's for, before walking into the herd as Dwight stares in amazement. Even further upon, Rick and Heath notice the herd breaking away as well and are shocked to learn that Pamela has followed them. As Rick frantically searches for the members of his group, the militia arrive and begin killing the walkers. Together, they mow down the entire herd, impressing Governor Milton. After Princess, and Merce, after Princess Mercer and the soldiers fight off the remaining walkers, Princess suddenly kisses Mercer as though they were having a moment, leaving him speechless. As the herd is eliminated, Dwight congratulates the soldiers. Rick asks Dwight if his soldiers have followed him, and Dwight confirms and asks Rick, asks if Rick isn't glad that he did. Rick angrily tells them that if he hadn't pulled Annie and Vincent from lookout duty, they might have avoided the herd altogether, leaving Dwight to contemplate his decisions. Pamela com- uh, congratulates Mercer, saying he did the Commonwealth proud. Furious at her seemingly lack of care for him and his men, Mercer asks for an apology. Pamela begrudgingly apologizes for causing him any alarm, but says that she knew what he was capable of and adds that now Rick's group knows as well, and she walks away. Mercer glares at her angrily. And things are starting to heat up now. We're just, you know, we're not in any major story arc right now. We're in the flux, and I love that about The Walking Dead. When you're in the flux, you never know what's going to happen. It's very important to remember. Uh, Here we are at 182, The Commonwealth Grows. This issue came out on August 1st of 2018. All right, here we go. We got a, uh, this one's actually a fairly long synopsis. Uh, But we're doing pretty good on time. We're not taking up too much here. I don't think, right? Only 45 minutes in, and we've also got the uh, the Jay Wolf Scott interview that's going to be coming up at the end of the episode. So make sure to stick around for that. At the sanctuary, John oversees the other survivor or the other saviors working in the gardens. A young savior, Christopher, asks if they're going to practice shooting later, but John declines, stressing that they already have enough soldiers but need more people who can grow things. Christopher complains he doesn't like gardening, but John j- gently reprimands him, explaining that it's not. A world of like anymore, but a world of need. Though Christopher is still dissatisfied, John goes on to point out just how far the sanctuary has come since the war and how much food they're producing for themselves. Christopher questions why they need so much since they already get food from Alexandria. John is quick to remind them that they have trade goods for that food and that the more they have, the better off they are. John reminds him of the days when Negan was in charge, when everyone was scared and miserable. He states that Negan's way of taking made enemies, and while their current policy of giving makes friends. He goes on to claim nobody wants to go back to Negan's way, 
while glancing at Mark, who hangs his head in shame. Satisfied, Christopher asks if he can have a baked potato tonight, before they are interrupted by the arrival of Rick and Pamela. Pamela is somewhat intimidated by the sanctuary's appearance, but Rick points out it used to be much worse in hopes that the times have changed. John appears at the gates and bluntly asks who Pamela is. Rick introduces her as leader of the Commonwealth, John apologizing for seeming unhospitable and invites them inside. After Governor Milton describes the Commonwealth, John is impressed, though he cautiously asks why they came to the sanctuary. Pamela replies that the coalition of settlements that the sanctuary is currently included in is the largest one they have encountered thus far, and expresses interest in trading goods and sharing resources with the ultimate every goal of rebuilding the country, pointing out that it would benefit both sides, impressing John even further. He offers them rooms to stay in for long as they want. Rick commends John's leadership, saying that he really turned things around, and John replies that he's, quote, all about making friends now. After Rick asks Pamela for option uh, for Pamela's opinion on the sanctuary, while she is impressed with the community, she's less optimistic when it comes to their leadership and adds that she sees why they need to be supervised by Rick. She asks what John did before the apocalypse, but Rick doesn't know. Pamela supposes that it doesn't matter, and switching the topic asks about Negan. Rick is hesitant, claiming it's a long story, but proceeds uh, to tell it nonetheless when Pamela prompts him. In the morning, they leave the sanctuary. Rick asks Dwight if he got any sleep. He replies that he hasn't, and his former friends bring too many bad. Uh, as his former home brings out too many bad memories, Rick takes the opportunity to apologize for Sherry, but Dwight interjects, saying that there's no need to reopen old wounds. He adds that he was wrong to blame Rick and also thanks him for not killing him. Rick humorously replies thanking him um, for that doesn't exactly paint the best picture of him. Dwight goes on to elaborate that he has always blamed the wrong people, be it Rick for Sherry or himself for Negan's actions, and revealed that Laura has been helping him with that before she gleefully interrupts him. Rick states that she's glad Laura and Dwight have each other before looking on, saddened as they ride further ahead. After making introductions, William welcomes Pamela to the kingdom, adding that the name made more sense when there was a tiger around. Pamela inquires, and Rick recounts his equal and Shiva, and mournfully adds they're no longer with them. Pamela knows that the communities are very colorful and asks how many more there are, to which Rick replies there's only one left, the hilltop. On the road, Mercer asks Rick if the roads between the communities are relatively safe, and Rick confirms. Mercer inquires if the people in Rick's community do whatever they choose, regardless of what they did before. Rick replies that before has got nothing to do with now, and goes on to elaborate um, that people who had more important jobs before tend to stick to those jobs, citing Earl as an example. Mercer asks Rick uh, asks what Rick was doing before the apocalypse, and Rick recounts his backstory. Adding that, adding if his profession in the Commonwealth would be hassling rowdy teenagers and giving odd speeding tickets, Mercer somewhat bitterly confirmed. And Rick, in turn, asks Mercer about his profession. Mercer reveals that he was and still is a Marine. Rick jokingly asks if he would rather be a florist, but Mercer denies this, as he is quite comfortable in his line of work. Though adds that there are people in the Commonwealth who are not. Rick expresses his condolences, revealing that the D.C. communities, everyone usually finds a place where they'll be most useful. And Mercer stoically grunts in reply. As they approach the hilltop, Rick is dumbfounded at the speed at which the community was rebuilt, as is Dwight. Okay. Maggie meets them at the gates. Oh, shit. 
Maggie meets them at the gates regretting that the restoration is not quite yet finished, though Rick praises their work nonetheless. Maggie attributes this to the whole community's work, uh, hard work as well as the workers William sent from the kingdom. Pamela interrupts them by asking about the destruction of the community, and Maggie, annoyed, asks who she is. Rick begins to introduce Governor Milton when he is interrupted by Carl, who is overjoyed to see his father. As father and son embrace, Rick says that it's nice to know that Carl has missed him. Carl claims that he was also worried about uh, also worried about his father. Rick is about to ask why before being painfully reminded of the loss of Andrea. Rick says that he didn't realize he wasn't thinking about the loss anymore until Carl said he was worried. Carl said that he was worried that he had made a mistake by coming to the hilltop as Rick needed him, though Carl thought the people of the hilltop needed him more. Rick commends his son's actions, claiming he doesn't blame him for leaving and that he needed the time alone. Carl notices, or Carl also notices, Rick isn't using his cane, and Rick claims to be claims that he doesn't need it anymore, as the pain either went away or he's gotten used to it. Rick humorously adds that he still won't be winning any foot races, and Carl assures him that he'll be fast enough for both of them. Almost done on this one, folks. This one's a little bit of a, like I said, a longer one. At the meeting, Maggie is skeptical about Pamela's good intentions, asking if the proposed alliance would entail trading knowledge or resources or pictures of Pamela hanging in every room, also pledging allegiance to the woman who smiles too much. Pamela claims it's the former and slightly embarrassed as she didn't know it was possible for a person to smile too much. Maggie claims that it is, especially when one is trying to earn the trust of new people, as everything they say seems like it could be a lie. Rick gently reprimands Maggie for being rude, irritated, irritating her even further. Jesus asks about the conditions in the Commonwealth, and Rick begins to tell them about Michonne staying in the Commonwealth, but is interrupted by a shocked Maggie who asks if Michonne is being kept pr prisoner. Pamela denies this and explains that Michonne has been reunited with her daughter, who has been happily living there for years, and chose to stay with her. As the entire room stares at her in disbelief, Maggie agrees with Rick's plan to visit the Commonwealth and agrees to the Alliance if Rick approves of what he sees there. In the morning, Rick meets Eugene on the road. He is driving a cart full of Commonwealth soldiers as he figured they'd move quicker with the soldiers being on their feet less. Rick notices a bunch of tools in Eugene's bag and asks what they're for, but Eugene doesn't want to spoil the surprise. Dwight instructs Heath to take his group back to Alexandria and stay alert, telling him that they will be hopefully back in less than a month, but adding that he would send someone to report back if they stay longer. Pamela invites Rick to ride with her in her carriage, and Rick gladly accepts. She has what happened to his son's eye, and Rick tells her that Carl was shot. Pamela claims that though they've had a that they've had a fair share of conflict, they've never had children on the front lines. Rick grimly tells her that the luxury had always escaped them. Pamela says that she hopes those days are behind them. She goes on to praise the communities, deeming them Commonwealth material, though adding that the distance would be an issue. That is all needed now, she claims, for the Commonwealth to bring to Rick's group to their way of thinking. Rick counters that his group could bring the Commonwealth to their way of thinking as well. Pamela jokingly hypothesizes Rick will be trouble, and Rick replies that hopefully he won't be too much. Whew, moving on. All right. <clears throat> so issue 183, Michonne. Without and Michonne without her sword. This is where shit kind of really starts to to flare off. Short, brief synopsis. This was more action packed. One thing to mention about the comic is some issues are super heavy dialogue. You can tell, especially in these plots that are written, because they're so long. There's a lot to say. There's a lot to go on. The actiony issues definitely come after those thicker issues because you're seeing the actual progression of what's happening. So here we go. In the Commonwealth, Michonne, Elodie, and Jerome travel to Greenville. 
Michonne tells Jerome that he didn't need to accompany them and that she's quite capable of defending herself, but Jerome states that it's protocol and that they, as they can't allow people of Michonne's stature to travel alone. They run across a small group of walkers and Jerome orders them to stay back while he dispatches them. Michonne cautions him to be quiet as they care, there could be more of them, but this only serves to annoy Jerome. True enough, more walkers appear out of the woods and Jerome is quickly swarmed. This prompts Michonne to jump from her saddle to help the soldier. She grabs his gun and kills off the walkers, shocking both Jerome and Elodie. Impressed, Jerome offers to let her lead the rest of the way, but Michonne declines. Her daughter, likewise impressed, tells her mother she's full of surprises. Jerome tells them not to worry about the bodies as Commonwealth will send someone to clean them up. As they arrive at Greenville, Michonne is awestruck at the beautiful scenery and thinking she's really going to like it there. As Jerome departs, Elodie suggests a hostile a hostel they can sleep in, but they are interrupted by Cloris, who's reserved a cabin for their arrival. After spending quality time with her daughter, Michonne goes out on the dock to cry. Elodie asks her what's wrong, but Michonne replies that it's absolutely nothing, revealing that she's been crying tears of joy. In the morning, as they're ready to depart, they are met by another soldier, Rufus, assigned as their escort. Before they depart, Cloris gifts them with a bag of food and drinks for their journey. Michonne notices a family unable to afford food, so she gives them the basket instead. Cloris disapproves as there was some expensive wine and cheese in that bag, but Michonne replies that it seemed like the family needed it more than she did. Arriving back at the Commonwealth proper, they encounter a bunch of people running in the streets. When Michonne inquires, she's informed that an officer had been attacked. She rushes the scene only to find perpetrator being beaten to pulp by other officers. She rushes to his aid and is shocked to recognize Jerome as one of the officers responsible. Lance arrives to see Michonne in her apartment. Michonne asks if the man is going to be okay, but Lance informs her that he's in critical condition. Lance tells her that the man, Anthony Keith, assaulted one of the officers after getting into a shouting match with them, explaining that Anthony's wife was having an affair with an officer. He adds that there are numerous witnesses that confirm Anthony attacked the officers, though they all downplayed it due to the brutality which the officers responded. Michonne is worried about the story getting spun badly and escalating. Lance agrees, adding that they can't have people losing faith in officers and explaining that this is why they need Michonne's help. He wants her to defend the officers and prove they did nothing wrong, firmly adding this is not a request. At dinner, Michonne is furious with Lance. Elodie explains, uh, but Elodie explains to her that Michonne is one of them now and that she can get away with all kinds of things until she proves that she's not. Michonne is conflicted, as she agrees that there should be a trial and that everyone has a right to a defense, but she is uncertain of how this will look in the eyes of the public. After being interrupted by a woman furious that Michonne is defending the officers, Lance arrives unexpectedly to see them. He somberly informs them that Anthony Keith has died. Michonne looking on, in protest for, looking on at the protest forming outside of her apartment as Elodie breaks through the crowd. Elodie is worried that there are, things are getting really bad as even her friends are taking, uh, talking about doing something. Soon enough, the protest escalates into a full-fledged riot. A protester throws a trash can into the window at their office. Michonne tackles Elodie to protect her. As the crowd breaks into the apartment, Michonne tells her daughter to run, but Elodie refuses to abandon her mother. Suddenly, Jerome arrives to help fight off the rioters and instructs them to run. This coincides with the arrival of Rick and Pamela, who are shocked to find the Commonwealth in chaos. So, issue 184, Eugene Tinkers. This issue dropped October 3rd, 2018. We're moving right along here in the year. And... We're going to just get into this plot. Another shorty. That's good. Having just arrived in the Commonwealth, Rick and Pamela are shocked to find it in the midst of a riot. The rioters are beating up Jerome, so Michonne goes back to help him while telling Elodie to stay put, though she doesn't listen. 
Michonne tries to get the mob to leave Jerome alone, but this only serves to redirect their anger towards her for defending him. A rioter punches her and clubs her over the head. The mob are about to beat her up when Jerome throws himself on top of her to shield her from them. The mob beat Jerome severely before they are broken up by Mercer, Dwight, and the Commonwealth Army. One rioter pro Test a, uh, one rioter protests that Jerome killed Anthony Keith, but Mercer points out attacking an innocent woman won't solve that. After the court hearing, Michonne defends the actions of the officers just a misunderstanding and an accident. She stresses that the men that committed the act had already been punished and asks that the judge drop all charges. The judge thanks her for her input and says he will consider it. The prosecutor wants to add something, but the judge denies his request as Michonne smirks. Afterwards, Rick asks Michonne if she believes what she told the judge, and Michonne replies that she did for the most part. But she reassures Rick that despite what he's seen, the Commonwealth is a really special place, and that things in it are almost back to the way they were, adding that she would sell her soul to keep it as good as it is, and in fact, she thinks she already has. Rick seems concerned by this revelation. Eugene and Stephanie are in Expecting a locomotive, Stephanie asks what they're doing, and Eugene informs her that he wants to repair the train. When Stephanie asks why, he tells her the train could solve the distance problem between the Commonwealth and D.C. communities and would be one step closer to rebuilding civilization. Stephanie warns him that such a project could take years, but Eugene is undeterred. Back at the governor's office, Pamela reprimands Lance for letting things fall apart when he was in charge and is about to demote him. When she spots Rick outside helping with the cleanup, much to her dismay, Pamela confronts him, but Rick tells her that he figured helping out is the least he could do. This prompts Pamela to help with the cleanup herself to save face, much to Mercer's satisfaction. Sebastian spots his mother doing the menial work and questions her actions. Pamela informs him that she's helping and offers her son the chance to do the same, but he angrily rejects her offer. Dwight is disgusted at having to clean up the Commonwealth's mess while they eat at a restaurant above them. Laura suggests they clean up the Commonwealth after cleaning up their mess, an idea Dwight seemed to like. Mercer and Juanita have just had sex, with Juanita joyfully exclaiming that it was the best sex she'd ever have. Juanita asks whether their relationship is casual or something. Mercer says he likes to listen to Juanita talk and answers that, and answers that it's something more as casual isn't really his style, much to Juanita's joy. The two kiss Juanita thank, is thankful to have left Pittsburgh Princesses Juanita, by the way, uh, and thinks her life has been getting better every day since then. Rick is greeted by a couple on the streets. They thank him for helping with the cleanup and ask if they have room in Alexandria as they might consider moving. Rick assures them that Alexandria leaves much to be desired when compared to Commonwealth, but the two aren't so sure. After they part ways, Rick finds Dwight sitting in his apartment. Dwight wants to be put in charge of the Commonwealth as he thinks the people are are being oppressed. But Rick denies his request, his request, furious and in disbelief. Dwight asks him what he means by that. I mean, we're picking up here, folks. We're getting right along. Oh, goodness. Oh, you guys, I had to stretch a little bit. Like I said, we haven't covered The Walking Dead in a long time, so we're like cramming all of this in as fast as I can. I know it's taken about a half hour to get through or 40 minutes or so. I'm sorry, but it's worth it because when we get to the end of this next couple things, we're going to get the real pop-off and, and what's to come. One more drink break. Poor news. Maybe the last drink break for poor news of 2018. Also, holy shit, this is the last journey into comics of 2018. No, 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 not true. Second to last, because I got the last day of 2018. That's right. So this, yeah, but this is probably the last poor news drink break. We'll see. We'll see how we're feeling. 
back to issue 185 on The Walking Dead, which was called On Guard. Uh, got Carl on the cover at the uh, at the hilltop. Came out November 7th, 2018 here. And Rick asks if Dwight meant to take the place by force and points out that they might not win such a war and that it would result in people being killed. Dwight thinks the people out of the Commonwealth would rally behind them, but Rick wonders if Dwight has learned nothing and tells him to leave, clearly frustrated. Clearly frustrated. At the hilltop, Carl is talking to Lydia about being worried about his father. When he notices she is asleep, she's, is asleep and smiles. He sneaks out of her room but runs into Sophia in the hallway. He tries to make excuses, but Sophia sees through them. She is annoyed that Carl is having so much sex, while Carl grins that it isn't so bad for him. Sophia expresses frustration that all the boys at the hilltop suck and that she's never going to lose her virginity. Carl suggests she try her luck with Roland as he likes her. Sophia points out that every boy at the hilltop, quote, likes her and that there aren't a lot of girls in her age bracket. Adding she doesn't like Roland anyways. Carl suggests Mickey, but Sophia thinks Mickey lives too far away and needs someone close. She mournfully explains that there's no one at the hilltop to have sex with her. As they awkwardly look at each other, Carl makes his excuses and... The two wish each other good night. At Alexandria, Yumiko finds Magna on watch and wonders what's got her so worried. Magna thinks that Rick isn't going to be happy with how things are going in the Commonwealth and that conflict is inevitable. Yumiko says they can always leave, but Magna would rather fight a war than live on the road again. Yumiko points out that it might not come to war, but Magna doubts this. Back at the Commonwealth, Rick is having lunch with Michonne and Elodie, uh... Excited at the strangeness of having lunch in a restaurant in the apocalypse, Michonne jokes about becoming a waitress in the apocalypse when she notices their waitress is standing right behind her. Michonne apologizes, but the waitress tells her to think nothing of it. When the waitress leaves, Rick jokes about not ordering dessert because he doesn't want spit in his food. He reminds himself about lunches he lunches he had with his family before lunches he had with his family before the apocalypse and acknowledges the Commonwealth is a special place. As Melody and the show, Michonne, Elodie. And Michonne continue talking. They notice Rick tearing up. Rick apologizes, explaining that he wishes Andrea could have seen the Commonwealth. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Eugene and Stephanie are inspecting the engine of a train. Eugene expresses excitement that it's much better condition than previously thought. Suddenly, Stephanie kisses and explains that she got excited. After, brief, after briefly being stunned, Eugene kisses her back. Pamela continu uh, continues reprimanding Lance and orders him to double the patrols to remind people that they are the ones protecting them, but more importantly, to prevent them from rebelling again. Maxwell arrives and informs her that Rick has come to see her. As Lance leaves him alone, Pamela asks Rick about what happened at the restaurant. Rick says that he isn't surprised that he is being watched, but Pamela assures him that she heard of the incident through gossip. Rick explains how he lost his wife recently, and he knows how much she would have loved the Commonwealth. Pamela says she understands and reveals that she had a daughter who also died before they arrived in the Commonwealth. Dwight is walking through the streets and is annoyed at the increasing number of soldiers. He antagonizes them and is also starting riling up the people, telling them that they live in a police state. When one of the soldiers grabs him, Dwight shoves him to the ground. As the soldier prepares to arrest Dwight, the people start rallying to his side. Dwight then surrenders, satisfied that his point had just been made. Rick goes to see Dwight in the Commonwealth jail. Rick wonders what Dwight was thinking. Dwight explains that he was testing where the people's loyalties lie, and that now he is certain that they would support Alexandria in a conflict against the Commonwealth, adding that they can easily win given that there are more people than soldiers. Rick angrily asks Dwight if he took the time to see the good things about the Commonwealth. 
as Rick had been thinking about how they could improve the Commonwealth as well. He acknowledges that the Commonwealth system is wrong, but points out that things aren't so cut and dry as they're not simply a conflict between good and evil. Rick thus wants to change things by example rather than a war. He says that what Dwight is doing is dangerous and that it has to stop. Rick walks away. He is surprised to find Mercer still standing outside the door. Before Rick can say anything, Mercer tells him that Rick is the leader of the, the Commonwealth needs. And we're really firing up. Now think back to back in 179 and 180, Dwight shows up and he's got this kind of gut feeling that something's amiss. He has these these feelers. You know, uh, this is the last one I've got to read, folks. And then I'm going to have to bust through some other shit, but we're going to be good and quick about that because there's I'm not going to spoil too many things. These are these are this is getting us back on track for The Walking Dead. That was my plan for today. You guys are also going to get the uh, awesome interview conversation we had with Jay Wolf Scott, Julie Wolf Scott. It was a great conversation. Make sure to stick around in the next uh, part of the show after I get done with this next bit. So here we go. Issue 186 just came out December 5th. I just read it, and this is why we're here. Because as soon as I read it, I was like, holy shit, we got to catch up. So I'm just going to go ahead and uh, do it real quick. At the hilltop, Sophia is eating lunch when Joshua introduces himself and asks to join her, to which she begrudgingly agrees. She sees Carl encouraging her from a distance, to which she rolls her eyes. At the Commonwealth, Eugene wakes up in Stephanie's bed and discovers Stephanie adjusting her wig. She is ashamed at first and attempts to hide it from him, but eventually shows him her real hair. Eugene assures her that he finds her beautiful no matter what. Dwight is released from jail and is reprimanded by Laura, who stresses that he could have been killed. She agrees that there needs to be a change in the Commonwealth, but doesn't want things rushed. Dwight, on the other hand, believes that the Commonwealth needs an urgent change. Laura clarifies he isn't trying to downplay the situation, but thinks there needs to be a plan. She asks where Rick stands, so Dwight tells her Rick will come around. Rick talks to Michonne about Mercer, supporting him against the governor. Rick Rick starts to think that Dwight was right all along and that the people will back them if they try to take over, much to Michonne's horror. Rick says that he can't simply ignore the corrupt system of the Commonwealth and can't believe Michonne is able to. Michonne explains that she knows the Commonwealth has a lot of room for improvement and that what excites her about being there, um, and that is what excites her about being there, but believes change can be achieved through peaceful means. Ellie is having lunch with her friends. They complain about not seeing her anymore, to which she apologizes. One of her friends politely tells her if they worried about what side she's on since Michonne defended the guards and Elodie is now living with her mother in a fancy apartment. The question shocks Elodie. At Alexandria, Magna instructs Heath and Vincent to keep the militia ready. When they ask what they're getting ready for, Magna tells them just in case. Heath is confused as this is the default state of the militia, but Magna clarifies she just wants to increase the standard level of alertness. Back at the Commonwealth, Pamela and her entourage are on the hunt, accompanied by Rick, Michonne, and Dwight. They spot a group of roamers, so Pamela asks for a shotgun. She shoots one roamer in the shoulder and instructs Mercer to deal with the rest. Pamela invites everybody to head back. Michonne is concerned about Mercer, but Pamela assures her that he will be fine. Dwight and Rick confront Mercer in the locker room. Mercer explains that Pamela has them leave a few roamers in the wild so she can organize hunting parties and put on a show so the people think she is safe from them or that the people think that she is keeping them safe. This disgusts Dwight. Mercer once again reiterates the Commonwealth is long overdue for a change, which Dwight agrees with. Dwight and Rick are invited by Michonne to her apartment. Once there, she tells them that she thinks they are making a mistake by planning to overthrow Pamela. Dwight disagrees and chastises Michonne for selling out a nice 
selling out for a nice apartment. Rick, however, agrees that they should work with Pamela to change things in the Commonwealth. Michonne is relieved to hear this, so she reveals that she has invited Pamela to meet as well. In that moment, Pamela bursts in the room with two armed guards. She says that she is glad as Rick on, that she is glad that Rick is on the same page, but tells Dwight that he needs to go. Michonne is shocked as she just invited Pamela to talk, but the governor will hear none of it, as she simply can't allow people to plot behind her back. Dwight and Rick are shocked that Michonne would betray them to the governor, but Michonne clarifies she invited Pamela to talk and nothing more. Dwight accuses Michonne of being with them now and tells Rick that there is no way he can peacefully convince someone like Pamela to give up power. Pamela assures Dwight that she isn't willing to do whatever is necessary for the well-being of the Commonwealth, but Dwight doesn't believe her. Pamela orders her men to arrest Dwight, prompting the latter to pull a gun on Pamela, shocking everyone. Rick tells Dwight to put the gun down, but Dwight refuses. He believes Pamela is the same as Negan and thinks the only thing people uh, like them respect is power. Dwight demonstrates this by threatening Pamela to instruct her guards not to move, which she does. Dwight says that they could take down Pamela right now and that everything would fall into place without her. Adding that the people of the Commonwealth would be thankful before anything can happen, Dwight is suddenly shot in the head by Rick. Pamela thanks Rick and assures him she won't forget him saving her life before leaving. As Laura is mourning, Dwight, Rick sarcastically asks Michonne if she's happy, accusing her of causing Dwight's demise by bringing Pamela to the meeting. He angrily tells Michonne that he will never forgive her for making him kill Dwight. This causes Michonne to snap at Rick. She tells him that Dwight was unhinged and that he would have snapped at some point. She is abashed that Rick is haunted by what he did and is saved as it saved lives by avoiding a war. Rick wonders if he really avoided a war or simply joined the wrong side of it. Holy shit, and like I said, we're we're right there. The death of Dwight was shocking because he's been such a fixture. He's been there since, I mean, let's see. Dwight's first appearance is like, fuck, 97, I think? I've got to look that up. Hold on. Dwight, Dwight's first appearance, Walking Dead. There it is. Uh, nine was what comic series ninety eight. Ah, I said ninety seven, didn't I? It was ninety eight though. So he's, I mean, he was almost around for a hundred issues. That's a long ass, you know, uh, story arc for a character in this world. I mean, you don't often get that somebody who there are very few people who are part of the old way. They're still part of the new way. We have so many new characters uh, constantly being added, especially now that we're being brought into the commonwealth overall i love the walking dead it was really nice to hear and to talk about that again and and and, you know to me the book is getting better and better and better and it has to do things like cool off and make you think it's boring and give you almost a year of not any crazy action to set up a moment like this where going into 2019 shit is on fire in the walking dead comic series like things are going awry 187 is I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, 187 is going to be a crazy fucking episode, uh, a crazy fucking issue. And I do want to really quickly bring up the cover for The Road Back, which is the next uh, issue for The Walking Dead. It's going to be coming out January 2nd. So you guys are actually going to be getting that on the 25th like, episode of 
JIC probably, I think is what's going to be. But the cover features Rick and Michonne. They definitely are at odds. I love that the you've got Rick in the foreground and Michonne look like uh, with her back turned to Rick in the background. So you could see there's definitely tension. It also looks like there are some of her lawyer papers in the air. What does that mean? Uh, where do we go from here? You've got Pamela who is now has some sort of appreciation for Rick. Rick realizes that he's maybe made a fucking mistake. Michonne is kind of in the middle of all this. You have nobody back at Alexandria that knows that this has just fucking happened, that the leader of the military has just been killed by their leader. What the fuck? You know? So it just sets this, like, really, really, really crazy tone, you know? So I'm looking forward to what The Walking Dead has to offer moving forward here. Uh, you know, you've got another issue coming out, 188. Um, and that one's going to be called Falling Into Place. That'll come out February 6th. So we've got a couple covers coming here soon. Uh, and, oh, I'm excited for that one because Falling Into Place, the issue is issue 188, Falling Into Place. And its plot just says, time to learn once and for all is princess friend or foe. And I love princess. She's one of my favorite characters. Uh, I'm really bummed that I don't have her first appearance, uh, basic cover because it's one of my favorite covers i have like the variant from that first release i'm trying to avoid a sneeze here folks i fucking hate that sometimes they just come on strong anyways dude dudes and lady dudes and and friendly dudes and people dudes all the dudes every kind of dudes he's a he's a dude she's a dude we're all dudes right i finished titans holy shit i'm not gonna spoil it i just want to say a few quick things on this show great story the season is 11 episodes every episode sets up something everything has a purpose and a reason and 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 so on and so forth uh there's a crazy reveal after credits they leave you on a i don't really want to say a cliffhanger but man they just oh they they just built the tension beautifully you get to see Batman in this universe, Joker, Riddler, Two-Face. I'm not going to say how or why. I'm just going to leave you there. It's kind of like a jizz factory to take it back to last week's poor entertainment or to last week's uh, podcastrophe, both of which the word jizz factory was dropped. I don't know why that's a thing on the network now, but it came from my mouth one day, and here we are. So anyways, folks, uh, if you haven't yet checked out Titans, I do strongly encourage you to do so because you won't be disappointed. You're going to have... Uh, an interesting journey across the board because it just, you know, if you have no expectations on what to what you think you're gonna get out of the show, when you watch it, you're gonna you just end up going, oh man, I fucking loved it. It was it was brilliant. Like I I couldn't have I couldn't have planned for that to be the case. And they set they they do a great job of doing the foundation building. They've now set the foundation. So. I'm looking forward to see what Titans does in the future here. Uh, I've got a little bit of news here to get out of, get ourselves out of here before we go. Uh, and I want to talk about something. One thing I'm going to do uh, in the year of 2019 is there's this list. It's got like 50-some movies on it, right? How many movies? is What's the total number? It's 50. So the first two weeks, I'm not going to do this, but 20, like the middle of 2019... I'm going to start this thing, and we're going to talk about every Marvel movie ranked from awful to amazing as per what comicbook.com ranks them. 
and um, a little bit of Metacritic scores and whatnot. And I think I think that's actually what they're basing them on is just the Metacritic score. Most of these movies I have seen, some I have not. We're going to dish on them one at a time, just a little bit here and there. That's all I got to say about that. You guys, Aquaman opened at the box office this weekend to a $67.4 million opening weekend. Uh, it beat Mary Poppins Returns and Bumblebee. It earned $28 million on Friday and is just doing really well overseas. It seems that it uh, people like it. Uh, now, I say it seems that people like it because, interestingly enough, to counter that, Aquaman's critics reviews have dropped all the way to 63%, meaning that critics are starting to kind of not dig it as much or have things to say about it. Maybe they're finding flaws, but audiences are loving this. This is yet again... You're almost in that Venom territory. Now, Venom got shit on by the critics and a lot of fans and then some good. But um, let's read this here real quick. Uh, Aquaman is proving to be another divisive DCEU movie for critics and fans. The aggregate site Rotten Tomatoes revealed Aquaman's initial tomato meter score. The film had a 78% fresh rating. It would have been enough to earn the film a certified fresh seal of approval from the website. However, additional reviews for the film have dragged the score down a bit. Its tomato meter is now at 64%, which is still fresh, but not enough to get a certified fresh batch. The Rotten Tomatoes critical consensus for Aquaman reads, Aquaman swims with its entertainingly ludicrous tide, offering up CGI superhero spectacle that delivers energetic action with an emphasis on good old-fashioned fun. So, and then of course, its cinema score gives it an A-. I don't know, it's weird. I want to see Aquaman. I want to see it really soon. That's going to be my plan Hopefully before 2019, I need to get to the theaters, maybe make it a day where I watch both Into the Spider-Verse and Aquaman, because I need to review those for you guys and, and dish on them. Also, I want to mention that briefly, something really cool has been brought out from from uh, Warner Brothers. But Warner Brothers, on an episode of DC Daily, unveiled from the Warner archives the one of the prototype suits that Nick Cage would have wore as Superman, and it is fucking gorgeous. I love it. I just looked at it, and it's just like, damn. It's just a awesome-looking suit here. We have a little bit of Star Wars news, a couple, three little topics here, and then we're going to move it over to an interview that Veronica and I did at LaFiCon before Christmas with Jay Wolf Scott here. A little bit of Star Wars news, as it seems that we're getting a time jump uh, many Star Wars fans not used to big time, time jumps between installments in the Skywalker saga. The fact the only film that didn't have a significant gap was The Last Jedi picking up right after The Force Awakens. So we are, yeah. The next film is getting back to basics and embracing tradition, reporting that there's going to be a one-year time jump. So, cool. I'm looking forward to that. I love Star Wars. We're a little less than a year away from new Star Wars. John Boyega had something to say. The way that they've been shooting it right now is looser than the, before the, light, the last two times. Oh, Oscar Isaac said, sorry. Oh, we can try things. And it's a testament to J.J. coming back and feeling confident. There's less pressure for it to be right. We just want to make a good movie and have a really good time while we're doing it. So, man, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was trying to read where it said the thing about whatever. It doesn't matter. Guys, we're getting a time jump. And also, Natalie Portman is apparently not going to appear in this movie. There was rumors she was going to be a part of it. That's not happening. I just want to say we really need a Star Wars podcast on our fucking network. I really want to dive into Star Wars, and I feel like I can only kind of brief on it today because I'm running a little bit long 
for a typical JIC, but I really wanted to get us back to basics, get us talking about The Walking Dead, get us hyped for what's to come in 2019 in the the comic book world. And folks, I think that's going to do it. I am going to take myself out of the the picture now and say later, I'm going to send it on over to Nate right now, who is at LafiCon Live with Veronica and Julie Wolf Scott. We are here at LafiCon Live for the LafiCon After Christmas. Joining me as always, well not as always, but as often as we can have it, welcome back Veronica. How's it going? I'm good. Thanks for having me again. Good to have you. Uh, today we have a very special guest. Yeah. Uh, Julie Wolf Scott, author of The Children of Aberon. Did I do it right? Awesome. Yes. That's awesome. Thank I you. Okay, good. Uh, welcome to the show, Julie. Well, thank you for having me. We're so, so excited to be talking to you. Absolutely. We were driving down this morning and uh, we got linked to your stuff and we were checking out your book. It seems like a very interesting series that is very large. You've written a lot of content for this. It's been a lot of fun. It's been quite a journey. Um, We moved to Muncie about 20 years ago. I grew up in Lafayette. um, and, And the really cool thing about it is... It's just been such an amazing journey because locally we have a legend about a young girl. Her name was Elizabeth Ball that was daughter of George and Francis Ball, very wealthy family, you know, ball jars, ball Mm -hmm. university, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And what happened was she believed that there were fairies living in her backyard. Believed this her entire life, never married, lived in the house Oakhurst all her life. So I started asking the question, well, what if she was right? And what would it look like in modern-day Muncie, Indiana, if somebody started seeing strange things in Elizabeth's garden? Oh, that's so cool. It was originally going to be a short little fairy tale for our daughter. And, you know, just a little book. Well, it, the fairies had other ideas, and it just kind of <laughs> took off. I was, um, because I have 30 years in the graphics industry, I do my own graphics, I do my own interiors, so I was able to basically put out a book every four to six months um, for the first five books because wow. the ideas just kept flowing and, and everything. you were doing the legwork, so obviously you could put them out at your pace. Really. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. It's a lot of fun. Uh, so let's take it back to the very beginning of the journey for people who don't know you. Where does your love and passion for being a writer come from? Like, What inspired you to go down this path? Well, the funny thing about it is we moved to the country. We had gone from living in town. The children were, you know, just starting to transition into middle school. We had 248 channels. You know, you go from that down to 12 channels on satellite. We had two church channels, two shopping channels, and the networks, nothing on. So I spent a lot of time on the lawn tractor listening to Jimmy Buffett music, you know, because Jimmy's... uh, prolific storyteller and so you spend enough time on the lawn tractor you start letting <laughs> things roll through your head you know you come up with your own stories well in the meantime I would dance out on the lawn with my cowboy hat and my weed whacker and we had friends coming up the highway and they said hey we saw you out dancing in your yard I said oh no that was Desdemona my lawn girl <laughs> and, and so I started having these ideas and it got to the point where it was just a chunk here and a chunk there and it just kept bubbling up and all of a sudden I realized there was a story there and so what I ended up doing was just starting to write things down carrying a notebook with me everywhere 
And what was fun about it was it took me about two years, but I ended up writing a novel that was over 119,000 words. Wow. So, yeah, so it, my, first, my first book was like 400 and some odd pages. That's wild. It's, um, it's a cautionary tale that I'd written for our daughter. She, uh, I finished it on her 16th birthday, and what was really fun about it was... Um, you know, I thought, oh, this is going to change my life. This is, you know, I'm going to be a best-selling author. <laughs> Couldn't find representation for that thing anywhere. So it sat in a in a drawer for two years. Oh, wow. And then, um, you know, of course, the, the Kindle came online, and, and that was just the big thing this Christmas. And I had just quit my job, and my husband had sent me an email about Amanda Hawking. She was very prolific with zombie novels you know was selling those buggers for 99 cents a pop in 10 months time she made over a million dollars and I'm like wow well I can do that Mm -hmm. so I okay you know you wrote this novel it's huge so let's go ahead and 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 publish it to Kindle because I can't get a an agent so okay so I learned how to program for Kindle and I go through the learning process, you know, makes you feel like a rocket scientist because, hey, I do HTML, which is, you know, easier than what you think. And so I went ahead and formatted it. I uploaded it to Amazon. I sent texts to all my friends. I'm published on Kindle. And they're like, great, that's awesome. Nobody had a Kindle. What's Kindle? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It was like I knew two people that had a Kindle, I and one of them was time. me. You know. That was at a time too. I think you probably speaking when the Kindle like first came out. It was the black and white screen, very mm-hmm. very low tech, mm-hmm. just for books. Yeah, exactly. Just for books. Oh, it's amazing how that has evolved as it is. It's right. crazy with what books are like now. Yeah. We're going to get into that, but continue on your story. Yeah. Sorry. So anyway, you know, I was like that. The learning curve with that was how not to publish a book. So I had to back up, go ahead and reformat it for for print. And all that stuff, and eventually pushed it out, you know. And even then, it's easier to sell books in person than it is online because you get into the sludge of the algorithm. And you know, if you don't sell books, you sink. That's right. It's so, all fixed. But even okay. going into a bookstore, it's it's so overwhelming because there's just so many things to choose from. Right. So anyway, um, in the meantime, I started working in a furniture store and was working 10 hours a day, 11 hours a day. I would get up at 4 in the morning. I'd write for two hours. I'd come home after work, you know, kiss the kids, send them to bed, blog. And I I didn't realize that I was doing so much until my sister-in-law said, wow, you really fit it all into your day. You do this and this. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) But but the first five books of the series, I put a, a book out from beginning to write it until having it in my hands completed every four to six months. Wow. That's some really intense work ethic and dedication on your part. It, it, it was more to keep my sanity because, you know, you get so many ideas in your head and unless... You have to get them out. Yeah, because otherwise they go away. Right. And, and you never know what's going to yield a really great... Right something right well and the first impression is always the best you know and so I got to the point where I was obsessive about carrying notebooks with me and making sure that I had some place to jot things down and smart and just kind of capture those 
those ideas. So it's been a little tougher here lately to get in back into the 4 a.m. thing, but um, I can um, imagine. Yeah, especially being more established now. I mean, how many books do you have out total? Um, there's seven books in this series, and then uh, First Wish was the first book that I'd written. Um, I've done a couple of digital books only. One's about my writing journey. The other one is just a short story. <clears throat> but I'm getting ready to put another book out after the first of the year. So, um, Are we allowed so to talk about that? Ten. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, because I know the publisher really well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's basically a total departure, you know, um, I, I kind of cut my teeth on fantasy and even First Wish has a fantasy aspect to it. So it's more of a Christian novel and basically what it is, is um, it, it, I think what the point of this book is trying to get people to, to think of what links would we go to for something that Jesus asked of us. And I was, I was it, it's been the hardest book I've ever written because I can't fix things with a sword fight. I can't fix things with a magic potion. Right. I can't. So this know. one is more based in reality. Yeah. And that gives me a reference a spiritual to, sense. there's a book, not to um, deviate from the point, but I read a book a long time ago called God. I think it was like God's God is dead or God. Yeah, I think it was God is dead. It was right, Ron Curry Jr. And it kind of played with the same thing. Like, what if Earth found out that the actual entity God no longer existed? What would happen? And how people would change? And like the perceptions. And I love that. That's the angle you're taking too. Is like at what, what would links would people go to right. to fulfill this end game? I guess right. is the best that's way to look at it. That's interesting. Right. It's called the question. Oh. And and yes. so Jesus asks these four people a question, and so it follows their journey through their wrestling with it and and how they handle it because you know everybody's faith is a very personal thing. Picking through all of your stuff, you know, and being honest with yourself is is a hard thing to do. And you know, when you're standing in front of Jesus, that's kind of <laughs> kind of what he asked of us so mm-hmm. anyway interesting but yeah that's a really cool angle for sure i really dig that yeah. uh so to go back because i want to kind of fill in all the gaps here you've written a lot obviously you have a passion and a, like veronica said work ethic With dedication write, dedication um you were talking about how people were like noticing how much you were doing it and you didn't really notice you kind of got into a haze where it was your therapy writing yes. was a way to get away from what really was happening. Yes. Your outlet. And that is like that's the point of creating as a whole is to find something that pulls you away from what real world life is, which is not always pretty. It's mm-hmm. not always filled with great stuff. There's a lot of darkness that you deal with on a day-to-day basis. And this is a good way to to process that. Absolutely. Yes. But surround all that back to the point what were some of the authors that first inspired you? Were there people that you read that were like, man, that is, that's where I need to come from. That's my, I want to be like that person. It was a lot of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, the, the whole fantasy thing. Um, I think part of it was, you know, in, in Raising the Kids, we, we tried to foster their imagination. 
their dad is off the wall funny and you know was always doing things to kind of spur that on um, our daughter has become an illustrator and wow. and uh, our son's still finding his way but uh, they're just amazing people that we enjoy being with you know we've gone to comic cons for years and that's awesome and that sort of thing but um one of the amazing things that i'd seen recently was a guy doing a ted talk that nasa had commissioned him to with another doctor help them locate all of the 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 genius level people in their ranks to pull them in on certain projects and so they developed this very simplified test and they gave it to these people and and you know it worked out well for NASA and then they started thinking well you know this is a really simple test what would happen if we gave it to a bunch of kids so they rounded up 1600 four and five year olds mm -hmm. 92% of these kids tested at the genius level oh, wow. and then they're like well what would happen if we come back in five years you know when they're 10 mm -hmm. so they tested them again and it dropped to 30%. And another five years, it dropped to like 12%. Oh, wow. And by the time they got to into their 20s, 2%. Wow. So what that told them is that imagination is, is that little kernel in everybody's creativity. And, you know not only with the creativity but that's where brilliance comes from because you're thinking outside the box or and you're thinking be nurtured. two miles outside the box and it's just so amazing to see how kids operate that is interesting it's also interesting to think about what's happened to them to make that number go down in their lives mm -hmm. like what, i think a lot of that comes from how uh, and uh, at least speaking for the American side of this, like we are bred to be test takers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we are taught to read in books and, uh, and to follow exactly what we're told and, and, and to know the answers and, and, and we're on such a tight regimen that I feel like imagination gets stripped away from people. And some people have thick skin and can take when people make fun right. of them and say, oh, you shouldn't be imaginative, blah, blah, blah. And they go, no, I have an imagination. Right. I know what I want. I know how to express that. But on the flip side, you have the people that are not so thick-skinned, that are unsure of themselves, they have confidence issues, that being told that something is different and losing imagination is a killer. Right. right. And then that person could totally change that. You could literally take someone who could be creative and brilliant and turn them on a dark path just from something as little as changing the, the love of imagination. Right. Right. Well, and it amazes me with the comic, you know, convention uh uh, what am I looking for? There is. I haven't had enough coffee. Yeah, we were talking obviously. about that. I need my, my coffee today. Um, <laughs> community, there it comes. You know, the, the, the community, it's just so encouraging. And I love doing cons down in Indianapolis because the cosplay is over the top to begin with. Right. No one makes fun of anyone there, and I just love that. Right. In those environments, those are the people that are getting the questions can we take your picture like, yeah it's fun and there's i love coming to, to conventions like this and supporting local businesses oh, and local yeah. artists and um I, I just think it's a great community especially in lafayette exactly well so um we had done our daughter had gone to ball state and gone through their animation program and she got out of school didn't have a job yet so i put her to work we did a children's book together 
And so um, she did the illustrations, I did the writing, and then I helped her put the book together. And we did it for the sole purpose of speaking to a group of kindergarten through second graders. I thought, how scary can they be? Well, there were 532 of them. Uh-huh. And what's funny is, you know, I'm talking about writing, and they're kind of squirming in their seats. I turned my daughter loose on them with her pictures. Dead silence. It was amazing. So, And then we sat down and read them the book, and it's like, I think I put them to sleep. Oh. <laughs> Nobody said anything. But it was great because, you know, for... Five minutes, seven minutes, I had these 532 little kids right there. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. I I know what you mean. I'm a preschool teacher by day, and I have my uh, five-year-old school. So um, we have a lot of fun, and we have a local librarian that comes into our school and reads to our class on Thursdays. And it's it's like trying to herd kittens, uh-huh. you know, like 34 squirmy little four and five yeah. year olds. And it's so fun. But when she find like she always brings at least 10 different books. And um, if one of them's not working, she'll put it down, have them stand up and we'll sing a song. And then she'll come back in with something else that'll grab their attention. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's so fun. We have a great time. <laughs> Get some squiggling around with mm-hmm. it. Yeah, we make we try we try to really encourage reading uh, at a young age and we we do lots of circle time and story time and we try to do the voices like we have peppa pig books that we'll do the the pig voices in and they just love it that's awesome precious (laughs) well and i love it too just that people are encouraging their kids to read because i i talk to so many people these events are like oh these sound like really great books but i don't read yeah i'm like oh that makes me so sad it makes me so sad too and you and i were talking a little bit about this before we started about um what happened to books with the advent of the kindle and how that's changed and you had brought up a really interesting point saying that it's made books actually like more appealing now Mm -hmm. it's got the the vintage vibe the vintage record feel yep yep kind of like vinyl my kids laugh at me because whenever i get a box of books in I open them up and I sniff the pages. Yeah. Let me tell you what, as a comic book collector, exactly the same. There is something about you can't beat like the a hard 1960s copies. musty basement smell. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> Library I, smell. I love it. I just can't get past it. That's the whole point of books is just to take in the history and to feel. I mean, there's something about, especially to be said about when I was younger and even as an adult, when I pick up a book and I see other people's names in it. Yes. And I'm like, wow, this book is history that's beyond me. And this has traveled with this person and this person. And who knows where this book has been? Mm-hmm. This book is its own journey that could be a book about the book, you know? And, and Incept a book. Incept a book. Yeah, really. <laughs> but uh, it's just, it is really cool when you pick up a book. There's something about it that you don't get in the digital. Also, people don't realize if you're getting headaches all the time, it's because you're looking at your phone all the mm-hmm. time. The screen. And, and it's affecting you. And guess what? I Pages hate reading don't do on that. my phone. It's the back right. is what does it. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and you're talking about the history, you know, how many people have handled that book. I love the fact that being an author, people invite us into their lives. You know, when they, when they take that book and they take it on vacation mm-hmm. or they take it to the doctor's office or they take it in the car while they're waiting for the kids... I'm suddenly part of their lives, and to to just know that on some tiny little level, it's so cool. <laughs> That's so awesome. That's got to feel so excellent and validating, especially with all of your hard work, you know, and dedication to what you're doing. And 
That's so cool. That actually brings me up to a great question. You've obviously created a name for yourself in selling these books. You're obviously doing something with them, or you wouldn't be sitting here talking, you know, right? There's, there's a point to that. So what has been some of the strange good things that have come out of you doing these books? Have you had a lot of people reach out and say all kinds of different good things? Have you had people come up to you when you're like, let's say, at a store or something, and they're like, hey, you're author so-and-so, I read your book, blah, blah, blah. Has anything crazy like that happened? That, that happens every once in a while over in Muncie, but um, one of the things that I've noticed is like when I go to conventions and events like this, a lot of times it's not about selling the books. A lot of times I have... Um, what a, a preacher friend of mine calls holy appointments and it's basically people that I'm supposed to talk to that day you know somebody that has um, decided to write a book or you know I've, I've always wanted to publish my own books but I don't know where to start you know I, I'm more than happy to talk to people about that it's just really exciting to be able to encourage people mm-hmm. you know because I, I had lunch with some friends the other day, and they're like, oh, we know a famous author, and I'm, I'm just kind of giggling. And they're like, what's the matter? And I'm like, I don't look at it that way. You know, I'm, I'm not a big name, but it's just what I do. It's who I am, and writing makes me feel more like who I'm supposed to be mm-hmm. on this journey. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't, I didn't want to be a writer. That was, that was the furthest thing from my mind. But everything that I've done professionally up until the time I hit 40 years old has led me to this you know I I've had a 30-year career in graphics I know how to do the desktop publishing to make the inside of it look like a real book I have worked with a marketing agency so I understand how to build the ads and do the the Facebook and the Twitter Mm -hmm. and all that stuff I've been a little negligent with that, but now that I'm doing this full time, it's like, okay, take the time, mm-hmm. do these things. You know, what else can you expand in the market? Mm-hmm. It makes a difference. Face- Facebook now have, has a great feature where they have the scheduled post. Mm-hmm. So you can just like set your week up to do the work for you, really, which is super nice. Spend an hour. Yep. Send them yeah. out. It's all you got to do. It's great. But, Allocating um, social media time for to promote your stuff is really important because mm-hmm. that's how how we can network these days i mean you you had mentioned earlier that you love coming to these cons because you of all the people that you get to meet mm-hmm. and actually converse with and talk to in person and it's you know more more personable exactly yeah and that's when you connect with people that's when you make the real connections and the real sales you know and i think another important thing to think about in your journey with doing conventions like this is as an author it isn't necessarily about the story in between the pages because that's going to catch the audience regardless. Right. It's your story that people are connecting to because you are the magnet to your journey which leads down every other path and it leads to you getting ultimately where you are today, which is excellent. It's like every step you've taken has been a building block to becoming the author that you are. Right. Um, and it's like in the moments when you were getting the building block, you did not see that picture. But once they all came together, you were like, oh, I can do this, and I know how to do this. And then then you feel in control, and it's got to be really fantastic. It's a lot of fun, and what I really enjoy about it is when, you know, people that want to write come up to me and we talk about this, I know right where they are. 
you know, I have all these ideas in my head. What do I do with them? Put them on a piece of paper, carry a notebook, you know, carve out time in your day to be creative and to write. And, you know, I've been stuck for like the last year and a half. I've been stuck and not been able to write. And it's just because life has been hectic. And it's like once I got to the point where, okay, you know, it's it's time to jump back into this. I'm I'm creating things again, not only writing I'm you know, this this book that I've just finished that I'm getting ready to edit, it's taken me two and a half years. Wow. And I'm not used to that, you know. Six months them out I can crank a book months. out. But this one's just been stuck. And so once I get this done, there's so many other things running around in the back of my head. I can't wait, you know. That's exciting. I can't wait to see what you do next. I'm going to be watching and keeping an eye out for sure. That leads me to another good question. You kind of answered it in what you just said, but I just want to make sure I'm understanding. You hyper-focus on one project at a time. You don't really bounce around a lot and do like early notes for a one script while I'm finishing editing another thing or you kind of stay focused on one task? Well, I've put the this book off for a long time and it's like the last two books that I've written, I felt like I needed to write this book, but the characters weren't there and you know, you, you still needed you, to cook a little. You, yeah, you got to get to the point where you care about the characters otherwise it's no not going to work. And so I kind of played with the other books, and it's like, okay, no, this book has to come, and then we'll get back to the rest of it, you know, but even, because there's three other books in my head right now, and I've got three other notebooks that have got notes scribbled everywhere, but, um, you know, just being able to get this one done, because I think that out of everything I've done before, and anything I'm going to do after, this is going to be the one that matters. I feel like it's like almost, um, regardless of how your sales numbers do, regardless of all the statistics that come with producing something like that, it seems like more of a personal thing. It really is. For you, and I think that's amazing. I think you have a great story to share. I honestly can't wait to pick up one of your books and, and, and start somewhere I don't where would you suggest a new reader start in your series um, well it kind of depends if you like light or dark magic um, this Both? this series is like Harry Potter in that it gets darker the further in you go sweet um, like I said I was cranking out the first five books every four to six months Um, But I got to book five, and I was looking at the darker characters in it, and I'm like, why are you like this? So I had to back up and figure that out. Well, what I discovered was that, at the time, was the hardest book I'd written because it took me a year. Because, one, I knew that it wasn't going to end well for some of the characters. You know, you give them a name, you get attached to them. You don't want anything to happen to them. It's going to be hard yeah, stuff's got to happen. Mm-hmm. And number two, it there was romance in it. I would rather write a sword fight <laughs> than romance. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. my gosh, you know. Uh-huh. So how do you write romance? That without, was a personal test for you. Uh, uh, I don't know. It just, <laughs> it just. It's got to be hard to put yourself in the position of two characters that 
you are trying to create feelings for without influencing how you would handle it and letting everybody have their own take on it. Right. That right. is a very difficult Well, angle. and I leave a lot of that stuff to the reader's imagination because, quite frankly, their imagination's much better than mine. <laughs> so, you know, I did, I'll let them run with that. But um, what was funny was once I got the nuances of that relationship down, mm-hmm. everything shifted. That's my favorite book in the series is nice. the, the Sodality. Sweet. So is that a good jumping-on point, then? The Sodality yeah, is book five. Actually, it's book six but it's a prequel so let that confuse you okay. okay. I, I, I understand how you did that that makes sense because you were answering questions that you had right. to ask yourself that as a smart reader you're going to at some point have to come to conclusions of like, why is that person doing this thing right and yeah, you got, you I love a pre- good prequel problem. Yeah. I love prequels prequels can be great yeah. if done right yeah, no and kidding. the nice thing is you know where they end so you just have to find clever ways to get your characters to the jumping on point right so, yeah. man, I'm excited. This is Yeah, awesome. I'm excited, too. Um, Julie, was there anything else you wanted to add today before we jump out? I know you didn't want to do, like, a crazy long show. We're already about 30 minutes in, so. Awesome. Um, just check us out. Check the books out at sure, jwolfscott.com. Um, I'm on Amazon, or uh, the books are on Amazon in both Kindle and paperback version. Um, you can reach them through my website or look us up on Facebook. Excellent. Excellent. We will do that for sure. I'll um, take your website when this episode drops. We're actually going to link it in the episode so people can click right there and go right to it. Awesome. Thank you. All right. So I think that's going to do it. Uh, This has been Journey into Comics. I'm Nate. I'm Veronica. J. Wolf Scott. Awesome. We'll see you guys later. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. And that was our interview with Julie Wolf Scott. I want to thank you guys so much for listening to today's extra long episode of Journey into Comics. It's the Journey into Comics Before Christmas, uh, JIC 223. I've been Nate. Thank you guys so much for checking it out. And as always, fill your brains with shit. Later, guys.